0: Bismillah We express our praise and gratitude to Allah. We seek blessings on the Prophet. Peace be upon him. Continuing our exploration of Shahab Ahmad. What is Islam? We are now on the second question, which is what page? 18? 19. Page 19. All right, let's read. The second question
1: when Sufis make their common assertion that virtuoso, friends of God, awliya Allah, singular wali, who are at experiential oneness with the real truth, and haqiqah are no longer bound by the, the specific forms and strictures of Islamic law and ritual practice, a Sharia that confine less spiritually and exist, existentially developed souls. Is this an Islamic or an un-Islamic truth claim?
0: So... <coughs> Similar to what we talked about with the, the previous group, you will have many in the, the ethos of the Sufis or in the universe of the Sufis who will say that you can reach a point where you are no longer bound by the Sharia. Right? right. What do you think?
1: I, mean, I can see that happening because um, one of the fundamental criticisms of Sufis is that they practice bidah, which mm-hmm. basically goes with this point. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: So, so the question becomes: Is this Islamic, right? And one thing is the claim of not following the Sharia, and then relate to the point I made about about uh, the philosophers in the previous group. Does that mean <coughs> they don't have to obey the Sharia, or does that mean that they automatically are fulfilling the Sharia? Those are two different things, right? But let's continue.
1: We have just noted the philosopher's concept of prophethood as an extraordinary kind of knowledge resulting from the presence within a given individual of an extraordinary degree of development of a human capacity, reason, otherwise inherent in every ordinary person. This is paralleled by the definitive Sufi idea, by rigorous developmental exercise of the holistic faculties of knowing common to all humans as opposed to giving priority to the... Ratio sinative right, faculty alone, any individual can potentially develop his or her capacity to attain immediate personal revelatory experience mm-hmm. cash, of some measure of the higher truths of the divine, even if that person does not attain the ultimate revelatory capacity of a prophet, who is for, for the Sufis effectively an uber Sufi. One might say, one might almost say, upon beholding a wadi. There, but for grace of God, goes a prophet. What we witness in the socially prolific ritual practices of Sufi dhikr, the rigorous developmental exercises for the development of of physical, spiritual, and psychological human capacities for experiential knowledge of God, knowing of God, enacted down the centuries in cities and towns and villages across the Islamic world, is the performance of Sufis striving for the holistic perfection of being, as the means to attain and access truth in the way of prophets.
0: Okay, so so one universe we've looked at asking, you know, is this Islamic or how, is the philosophers. And now we're looking at the Sufis. And so this first issue is that the Sufis say, or there are many among the Sufis who say that, all right, if you reach the status of being one of the awliya of Allah, the friends of Allah, you're no longer bound by the sharia. Okay, So then from there... We're saying a, distin- a distinction between the philosophers and the Sufis is that the Sufis are trying to be holistic in terms of your faculties as opposed to the philosophers which are focusing on the mind. Okay. And, and the Sufis are saying that someone can potentially receive kashf. So kashf literally translates as unveiling. Okay. That's kashf. And so what's being unveiled? Things from the hidden realm. Things from the Khaib are being unveiled to you. Uh, Sufis will not claim that this is wahi, meaning wahi is only for the Prophet, peace be upon him, or the Prophets, peace be upon them, and the Sufis can still have qashf, which is not authoritative. So wahi is authoritative over everyone, but the Sufis can receive insights. Mm, have you ever had a dream that's come true? You have? Okay. I mean, I have, I've had students over the years who have had true dreams. That could potentially be kashf. Um, I mean, it could be, you know, a firing of synapses, but I have one student who, he will have true dreams periodically and like he'll have a dream and like the event will happen one or two days later and he'll realize, yeah, I just saw this in a dream. Right. Um, so the Sufis, I mean, the first point to think about is, is that the Sufis are saying that's possible. And they're also saying that is attainable.
1: Would the philosophers argue that, that their higher truths are wahi, or would they say that that's an insight? Uh,
0: I would guess that the, the, the mainstream philosophers would not call it wahi, right. right? That wahi is only for prophets, peace be right. upon them. Uh, nevertheless, they are getting some access to, to these hidden truths.
1: Right. right. I had a question. Um, have you heard? I heard a narration about Abu Abu Hanifa. At the time of his death, when um, he had like a vision or something, or he had a conversation with Shaitan, and yeah. Shaitan came to him and said, "You don't have to pray anymore." Oh, uh, Ahmed Ibn Hanbal. Oh, Okay.
0: Yeah, but tell the whole story. Yeah.
1: Um, that you don't have to pray, and then he said, "I I I forget the whole story, but basically he says that he's still going to keep praying." So. Yeah. is it that that example of Imam Abu Hanbal? Yeah. Isn't that directly?
0: Okay. So, so yeah, so Ahmed ibn Hanbal is is super ill, and he keeps saying something like Astaghfirullah, Astaghfirullah, or audhu billah, billah, right? And people, thought, students around him, they thought he was on his deathbed, and then he recovers a little bit, and they asked him, like, why are you saying, you know, audhu Because shaitan kept saying to him, uh, he said, because shaitan kept coming to me saying, okay, you're set, you're going to paradise, you don't have to do anything more, right. and he kept saying, audhu billah. Uh, now, the key difference, uh, one key difference is that Ahmad ibn Hanbal would be in the universe of, of the jurists, okay. right? And they would say, Sharia, everyone is bound by Sharia, okay. right? Um, whereas uh, the Sufis, the Orthodox Sufis, would say, uh, everyone is still bound by Sharia, right? But there are those who will argue, no, you can reach a status when you're above that.
1: So that's what this is saying, right? Yeah. Yeah, that's like a small minority,
0: though, right? Uh, I don't think it's uh, a small minority. Um, uh, I wouldn't be surprised if it's as much of ha- as much as half the Sufis of the world. Yeah, and uh, but uh, they're definitely a larger population than the philosophers. Right. And they have a long history. Okay. Yeah. Or I should say, half the people who self-identify as Sufi. Okay. Yeah. <laughs>
1: Now, as every student of Islam knows, Sufism, the theory and practice of holistic, experiential not knowing of divine truth, was for over a millennium a foundational, commonplace, and institutionalized conceptual and social phenomenon in societies of Muslims. The omnipresence of Sufism is manifest in the proliferation over the centuries of the numerous Sufi orders, or brotherhoods, tariqa, literally path or way, plural, plural turuq, With those those metaphysical ideas and activities, the absolute majority of the population were affiliated either by formal individual oath of pledge, bayah, or by attendance of rituals. Okay, so
0: this is another important point. So the Sufis have a thousand-year history in Islam, and in so many Muslim societies, almost everybody was a Sufi, right? Today, we look at them as being on the margins, but for much of our history... They were, either by making a pledge of allegiance to a sheikh or just by attending the Sufi events, that represented the great majority in many of our societies. Okay. And, and so, uh, it's Imam al-Ghazali who kind of merges the law with, with the way the Sufis, but even centuries before him, I mean, these, these ideas and such uh, were presence, present. And another way to think about like the term he used, uh, uh, holistic, exper- uh, uh, holistic knowledge is experiential knowledge, right? Like, so, for example, um, describe for me how does chocolate taste without using the word chocolate.
1: Sweet.
0: Okay, sweet, which also describes 50,000 other things. So, like, you have someone who's never had chocolate before.
2: (laughs) Oh, God. It's like a sweet... But, like, it has, like, a cakiness to it. Like. Okay,
0: so that you got the texture, not the taste, uh, but yeah.
2: It's part of the taste, okay? Okay, okay. <laughs> it's like describing a color.
0: Color? Yeah. Okay, so it's brown. That's Sweet like, and brown. So caramel, you know.
1: I am saying, like, it's like describing a color. Like how do you oh, like describing does? a color, yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. And so that's the point that the Sufis make. Right, that there's limits to the rational.
1: Right.
0: That I can describe for you with as much precision as possible what chocolate tastes like, but it's not the experience of chocolate.
2: Where, but where do people or where's the logic for the leeway from like wouldn't the wouldn't like the companions or the prophets I um, some indicate these things or like explicitly say these things? So in some manner, like if it was if it was something to like <clears throat> aspire to or to have in the tradition
0: so there's a few ways to look at this uh, one is well I mean I don't think they would explicitly say these things in this word in these words right just because we're speaking of a, of different centuries right and the same thing that you don't see them say the same things about Islamic law right um, but it goes back to the other point that okay is it fair to say that they have reached these states so Sufis will often speak either of Abu Bakr or Ali as being the first Sufi if not the Prophet peace be upon himself, and and uh, looking at how, for example, Ali, we have a lot of uh, a lot of teachings attributed to him. Um, you know, from a Sufi perspective, he just, just sounds like he's talking about Sufis, right? Um, you know, like you know the, the hadith where the Prophet peace was saying, you know, this world is a prison for the believers and paradise for the non-believers. And then what does Ali say is the meaning of that? I mean, the way we often understand that is that okay, if you're Muslim, you can't do anything. Whereas non-Muslims are free to do everything, right? And Ali is saying, no, what this means is this world is a prison uh, for the believers because they cannot get completely to God in this world. They're imprisoned from getting closer to God. Mm -hmm. And then you're finally released uh, with death. Whereas for the non-believer, their God is in this world, so they're in paradise. That's very much Sufi language. If we're talking about bypassing the Sharia, Think of that as different language than, you know, not being bound by the Sharia. Right. Mm. You know? You know. Um, I mean, Omar seems to have the power to change the Sharia, doesn't
2: he? Each, right, but... Hmm. Talk
1: about the Bidah Hasana?
0: So, there would be Bidah Hasana, essentially, right? I mean, when we went from a textbook Islamic law perspective, we would not call that... Um, you know, a violation of Islamic law, right. right? But he he institutionalizes things related to prayer that the Prophet be did not do. You know, he, becomes becomes uh, a collective thing.
2: Isn't he also a, like? Couldn't he be a source of the law as well, though?
0: So in Sunni thought, um, the Sahaba are also looked at, especially when they do something different than the Prophet, peace be upon him, and and part of the logic is that if. One of the companions is doing something that contradicts the Prophet, peace be upon him. They'll get called out by other uh, by other companions, especially if it's a person in leadership, right? And and so from that perspective, for in, in the Sunni lens, they then become uh, looked at as part of the construction of the law, but the construction of the law is taking place later,
2: right? right as like a thing, yeah. Yeah. yeah.
0: You know, you'll have terms like like and sunnah and fardh but it gets developed by later generations. So my point is that what you're saying about the Sufis uh, can even to some degree uh, be applied to the law too. Okay. Um, on the flip side, another way to answer that is, do they say anything that contradicts this? Uh, I'm not aware of anything like that. You know, it's entirely possible that this is all a playground of shaitan. Right? And so one way to look at it is, what do people produce? So one famous case of this is halaj, Mansur al-Halaj, he dies around nine twenty-two, and he's the guy who became famous because he said "An al-Haq, I am the truth." Okay? okay, Paul Pierce. And so, I'm sorry. I
2: was like, "Okay, Paul Pierce." <laughs> Does he say that, Paul Pierce? Shit, that's his nickname. There. Oh, the
0: truth. Okay, so so that obviously sounds like blasphemy. Like if he said, you know, "I, anar, uh, rahman I am a rahman right? He's it sounds like he's saying, uh, "I'm God." And, and so, in the jurisprudence lens, yeah, that's, that's like a blasphemy. In yeah. um, the Sufi lens, he's not saying I am God, he's saying I cease to exist. So, all that is left is God. Yeah. That's what he's actually saying. Or, another way of framing the exact same point, uh, all I see now is God. And another way this is described within the, within the Sufi lens is, is there's the hadith of, you know, the Prophet speaks uh, about, like, uh, Tawbah and he says, you know, Allah loves tauba uh, more than the example of this guy who's uh, with a camel in the desert, and then he sits down, and he looks up, and the camel's gone away with all of his supplies. And now he's just there. And then, you know, if he prays to Allah, and eventually the camel comes back. And this guy is so elated that he says, you know, I believe there, uh, there's no God but me and Muhammad this is my messenger. Right. Like he's kind of just like so excited that he's almost lost his mind. And that's another way that that, uh, that line is interpreted from within the Sufi lens. That, that you can reach a point of such exhilaration that you almost take leave of your senses. These are all different interpretations of that, which from a jurisprudence lens is a statement of blasphemy. See what I'm saying? Do
1: you know what context he said that in?
0: Halaj. So, oh yeah, yeah, it's good that you asked me that. So, he was famous for all kinds of strange practices. Like, he would start walking around his house, he'd start doing tawaf around his house, which again, looks like he's doing some bizarro worship behavior. And he said he, to the people in his town, he was doing this um, because you guys are not giving the, the, the Kaaba its proper due. You are doing thawaf to Allah, you're not doing thawaf to the Kaaba. Right? And, and so you doing thawaf to the Kaaba is no different than me doing thawaf to Allah, to the house, to my house. And another way to test this is to see what they have to say. Using your own reason, you know, are, there the words, are their words the words of a madman? Or is there some sense to it? Right. And so, in Halaj's teachings, um, I think it's clear that he's not speaking the words of a madman, right? And not even the words of someone who is a heretic. I mean, he was eventually executed. He was tried and executed for right? heresy. Yeah, um, but um, Muslims don't play. <laughs> sorry,
2: I was like Muslims don't. Play. Yeah, Muslims in the
0: past, yeah, they don't play. I mean, there's uh, there's this guy uh, Ibn Al Muqaffa. Who was either a treasurer or a translator, but somebody some of a high uh, rank, and he was called Ibn al or he was called al because both of his hands were, were chopped off, uh, for for some crime, and and you know then he's still coming back to work, and yeah, that's the point. Muslims uh, don't mess around, but uh, so the point being that um, when you go through Halaj's readings, um, no. You're asking me the context. Um, yeah, Othas saying, when you go through Halaj's readings, um, they're definitely providing you with insights. So when I first started reading Rumi, um, you know, I always give this example. Like I'd read it on the train to work, and he'd have these paragraphs that were so profound, I literally had to stop. And I had to just sit there in, in, my, in my seat and just try to absorb what he's saying. Because okay? they were so profound. And what's interesting is that almost every single point that I, that I thought was a super profound point, he was just referencing a hadith and didn't say it, right? In what? Sorry. He was referencing a hadith but didn't say it, you know, like in all these profound points. Or he was giving an explanation of a hadith that was, that was pretty neat. So, like, uh, we're taught the two rakats of Nafl prayer, is worth more than all that the universe contains, right. right? And so we look at that from a reward perspective that, okay, if I do two more rakats of Nuffle, the reward is so, so gigantic, right? Or like if I do it in Ramadan, it's so gigantic. Or if I do it on Little Qadr, it's so gigantic. And he's saying, all right, you're missing the point. When we're saying that two rakats of, of Nuffle are more valuable than the whole universe, what it means is you would rather give up the whole universe than skip two rakats of Nuffle. Right, and so that's a different reading. That how from a jurisprudence perspective, right, we look at it according to reward and value or and yeah. that. But he's saying, and from a from a Tasawwuf perspective, we're saying, okay, I want to do so everything I can. Yeah, I want to do everything I can for Allah, and therefore, I should. You know, I don't even want to miss Nuffle prayers. So when
1: he's yeah. like, so when did he commit? Like, he... like, like, was was he in a gathering or was he? Was it writing? Oh, like he was just
0: saying stuff? repeatedly. Uh,
1: yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. Continue. The physical presence of Sufism was ubiquitously manifest in the brick and mortar of the built environment of every city in the form of various centers of Sufi activity. Uh, so these are
0: all different terms. Khanda uh, is what you find in the subcontinent. Zawiya is what you'd find more in the Arab world. in the Turkish world. Merkez, uh, oh, that also sounds Turkish to me, but it might be uh, yeah. Persian.
1: Yeah. Isn't it Merkez Arabic for the center? Yeah, Merkez
0: is, but Merkez okay. is. Uh, oh, Merkez might even be like Bosnian or something. Okay.
1: As well as in the Baraka, spiritual power, charged saint tombs that were loci, loci, loci? Yeah, I of, never knew. A yeah. veneration, visitation, mazar, darga, yeah. Uh, Zyarat Zyarat.
0: Zyarat. So, so yeah, so this we have all over the sub- subcontinent, right? Uh, I went to this one town uh, in, in southern India, Belgam, um, which again, this is like Hassan Minhaj's joke. Like, okay, it's a, it's a town, it's a village, but it's a population of like 3 million people. Because right? that's what happens in India, right? I mean, the roads are still dirt roads with like water buffalo walking back and forth. And, um, and so they told me that at each of the corners of the town there's a Sufi who's protecting the town. And so it's a tomb uh, of, oh. uh, of four different Sufis. What?
2: When you said tomb, I was like, oh, that's what they mean. I thought yeah. that was like a, like a dude. Like yeah, a Jedi. Like a, like a yeah, like a Jedi sitting yeah, in the I was garden. like, Oh, there's yeah. four dudes doing work. <laughs> yeah, I like, no. four tombs. I was like, oh, man. Yeah. Missing with that.
0: And so, and so um, yeah, and so these would be places where people would go um, and they would make donations, a better term is veneration. Uh, they would make prayers. Some people make prayers to Allah in that location. Some people would make what we would say would be prayers, but they would say what are not prayers, but they're basically speaking to that sheikh asking for help. And part of the logic is that that sheikh is then speaking to his sheikh, who's 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 speaking to, sheikh, who's speaking to the Prophet, peace be upon him, who's making du'a for you. Okay. So this again brings up the issue of What is death? Is death, you know, this only a physical ending? Is death a physical and a spiritual ending? You know.
2: See, for me, like, it's not about the logic of Mm -hmm. of the thing. But, like, wouldn't we see a practice like that, like, with any of the early, like, even the tabin or, like, where they would go to the graves of... Mm -hmm. Sahaba and then do that. And maybe they did, I don't know.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. So again, it's, it's the two sides, It's or you can say three sides. One is, yeah, it's possible that they did that, right? Uh, um, another is uh, it may, they may have done that, but the language we read a lot of these passages, we don't see it's right before our eyes, right? And the third is, did the Prophet, peace prohibit it? Right? And this is where <laughs> we get into the question of, of did the Hasan I like how the G'dahasana. third one
2: was totally opposite. It's <laughs> like, or it's all wrong.
0: No, no, no. I mean, did he? No, no. I'm saying, did he prohibit? Yeah, it? No, yeah, no, I know,
2: I know. Yeah. I'm saying the fact yeah. that that was like one of the questions. Was, yeah.
0: Uh, and so, like, like for example, you're not supposed to do salat as a tomb at a tomb. And we, we had this issue, like uh, again, in my short trip in Egypt, we were we were going on a tour of all these sites, and we went to the 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 tomb of Imam Shafi. Okay. And the physical structure is it's connected to a masjid. Okay. And the Prophet, peace be upon him, said, don't, don't pray, meaning don't do salah, at at a, tomb, at a grave. So I, some people were saying, we're not supposed to be here. And I made the point, okay, the tomb is over there. It's a different room. This is the musallah. This is not part of the tomb. And I think some people were still hesitant to, to pray Did, inside there.
2: They had that at, at Sheikh Zahid Mosque in Abu Dhabi.
0: Oh, really? There's a tomb there?
2: Yeah, so the f- the founder, I think of Zayed. Abad, Zayed. Yeah, yeah, he's yeah. uh, his his tomb is there. Oh, really? And it's playing. It was interesting to me to see it in the Gulf. So like, there's uh, there's like the masjid where it's like it's not in the masala or anything. Okay,
0: but that that's a really white masjid. So that's the one. Yeah yeah, had, yeah, yeah,
2: yeah. Uh, and there's a uh, it's all marble, and then but like in the courtyard or before, you hear like Quran just playing on these speakers, blasting. And at first, I thought it was them reciting mm-hmm. inside, but then I went and it's just be- it's just being played outside the, like, grave. Wow, okay. Yeah, it was really, and I took a little, I wanted to take a recording, but then the security guard's like, you can't do that. And I was <laughs> like, I'm not trying to get arrested in the UAE. <laughs> yeah. Um, but so, I, th- I still think I got it somewhere. <laughs> exactly.
0: So the question is not, um, is this a valid Islamic practice? the The point is that this has had a long history in the Muslim world. Okay. And this goes back to the question of, all right, this seems to be contradicting what we're taught from a jurisprudence perspective. So, is this Islam? Is this not Islam? If we call it not Islam, then why did it survive? And it would be too easy to, to just brush it off and say, okay, these people were, were innovators, they didn't know what they're doing. You know? But it may be that this is also legitimate. Okay. I mean, A.R. Rahman, um, the, the Bollywood composer, uh, he became Muslim because of these guys. Like, his sister was super ill, and no physician or anyone could help her. And then, sort out of the desperation, they went to some some Sufi, and, and, like, he did whatever, and then she became okay. And so he became Muslim because of that. And so he changed his name to Allah Raqqa Rahman. So it's like, how would you translate Allah Raqqa? Like, you know, like God um, has kept him. Go. Go. Yeah? So there's definitely an efficacy, right, that definitely works. I'll give you another example. This is my, my papa, so my dad's sister's husband. Uh, he had a stroke, and he, w- he basically became like an invalid. Okay? He himself is a physician. His kids are physicians. They went to physicians, and no one had anything, and they thought, okay, well, let's talk to this one Sufi that we know. And so he gives them all these specific recipes, Right, and so this one recipe is, take a uh, 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 recite this particular surah X number of times, and take this particular ayah, write on a sheet of paper, and put it in water and mix it, okay, and and so then, and then come back and tell me what happens, okay, and then they do that and something's happened, and then they go back and, and then he gives a second recipe which, again, is reciting certain passages and doing some other stuff, usually with water. And and so my cousin is saying that um, when he did this, suddenly his father, like, had these convulsions, okay? And, and doing more of these recipes, his father was walking and talking again, okay? Uh, he still had a slur, and he definitely, you know, was a victim of something. Like, you know, he definitely had a... Um, uh, what do we call it, like, you know, massive limp and stuff, and even looking at his toes, his toes would always be stretched out when he'd walk. Yeah. yeah. You've seen that? Yeah.
2: No, no, I'm just saying, yeah, like oh. I wasn't your story. Oh, yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, and, um, and yeah, I mean, eventually he died, like, ten years later, but he went from being an invalid, and so we could say, so coincidence? Uh, or what? Maybe,
2: but, like, affi- Laura's like,
0: uh-uh, it's the real thing. Yeah.
2: No, no, because efficacy isn't always... I mean that's cool. It worked, right? But like, that's not necessarily like proof to me. Proof of what? Of like that this should be a practice.
0: Okay. So, so
2: meaning like, um, I was had talking to someone else about this, right? Like, I was like, uh, let's say, let's say you believe in in possession. Yeah. Right. As a thing, and so then what would you say like? If you're a Muslim, then what would you say about all the Catholic priests who are saying, "No, we've we've been mm-hmm. able to successfully mm-hmm. remove people from like mm-hmm. remove the devil from people"? What would right? we say? And there's there's there's, there's efficacy mm-hmm. and it all works. Mm-hmm. And I'm saying there's no reason to me like why it couldn't work. Sure, mm-hmm. it's plausible. There's nothing mm-hmm. like. But I mean, I don't believe in. I'm not even going to say all this on recording. I'm okay. just saying like. I'm just saying if there's that efficacy, then what do you respond to that? With?
0: Okay. So, so, a couple ways to look at this. One is, is this something exclusive to Muslims? Meaning, if I use this as a proof of Islam, then that's an issue. Right? But if I'm speaking about this as a real thing, that's something else. Yeah. Or, you know, from the shaitan perspective, um, this could be a technique for shaitan to lead you astray. Like, yeah. You know,
2: but why couldn't this be?
0: And this is also possible. Yeah. Uh, and here, like with the um, the the traditional Muslim exorcism, uh, almost the entirety of it is recitation of Quran. Yeah. So that would make it less plausible, right? That he would have the strength to do something like that. Yeah. Right. Because even if you say a'udhu Billah," like it knocks him away. Yeah. Um, so I say it from that perspective, you know? But if I say this is a proof of Islam, that's something different. Yeah. You know?
1: Oh, Alright, so Sufism was present in every city through Baraka, charged saint tombs that were loci of veneration, visitation, and of intercession with the divine.
0: Dun-dun-dun-dun, the wassola and Okay, so, um, what do you think? Intercession. Dun-dun-dun. Struggling today, aren't you, Moshalaya?
1: On only the prophet can intercede, right?
0: Well, the way it plays out is that Allah Ta'ala says in the Quran that no one can intercede, or who can intercede, except with the permission of Allah. Okay. okay. And so, so, one ayah, uh, coming a couple times, you know, Allah Ta'ala is telling the children of Israel, okay, there's not going to be any intercession on that day. Mm-hmm. And then in ayat al you know, um, who can intercede with Allah, except whom Allah permits, right? And you put those both together, and the common reading is that, okay, the reason that children of Israel are being told no intercession is that what those eyes are saying is, you guys are given everything in dunya, you're not going to be given anything in akhirah you got to earn it, yeah. right? And then, um, that who, whomever Allah, who can get, and grant intercession except for Allah. So it's still saying the power and authority is in Allah. He's the one who does it. Right. And then we say, you know, from the teachings of the Prophet, peace be right. upon him, that the Prophet has been given certain types of intercession, the Quran has been given certain types of intercession, Right. If you're a shaheed, uh, you may have a certain types of intercession. Right. Uh, if you're a hafiz, maybe that's why a lot of parents in their kids to be hafiz because then it's yeah. like, hopefully, a pathway to about, paradise. What about a hafiz Remember that doesn't believe in Islam? Anything? Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's that's why. I know. Oh yeah, that's. Uh, <laughs> I read a guy
2: he was hafiz, and then he was like, but he still led prayer, but he's like, I didn't believe in. It. Ouch. And yeah. I was like, that's kind of savage.
0: Yeah, I mean, there's a famous Muslim writer who who um, who used to joke about how when he was in undergrad. He used to give him a khutbahs. He didn't believe in any of it. Everyone used to praise him. Wow, that khutbah was profound and all that. Yeah, yeah. So, so so the point being, um, the prophet definitely. Uh-huh. But then the prophet seems to be saying, that, you know, other people might have that.
1: There's actually an ayah in Surah Anbiya. Mm-hmm. Um, it says that it talks about angels. Okay. And it says, what I illa so no one intercedes except whom he pleases, so mm-hmm. I guess that's the same concept, but that's in context of the angels, right? I'd have to look it up and see. Um, mm-hmm. Do you see it now or later? Oh, exactly. uh,
0: we'll show short later, show, okay. yeah. But, so the principle here is where the question becomes, can, you know, uh, someone provide intercession that the Prophet, peace of him did not tell us about? Right? Um, and then the way, another way to respond to it is, did the Prophet, peace be upon him, say no? No one else but these sources. Okay. And what a lot of these fields are addressing are those ambiguities, those, those uh, empty spaces in between. it would be one thing, like, I don't know if there's any, you know, you know, any sort of universe of Islam that says, all right, you know, we're all going to eat pork. Right? Alcohol we saw in that early story. But most of these groups, um, you know, find their place in a lot of those empty spaces. Right, you know. All right. Um,
2: Which is, I mean, part of it's funny to me because, like, they'll say, like, well, you can hit a point where you transcend Sharia, but, like, there's another part of them that stays, like, within, very traditionally within the law, like,
0: Okay, explain further. I mean. Meaning, like, they
2: won't be eating pork, right? Like, they won't sure.
0: be, like. Usually, what you'll find with, with uh, um, uh, these Sufis is that they'll be speaking not about themselves, uh, but they'll speak, be speaking about the sheikh or some sheikh in history, right? Or more often than not, they'll say, okay, you guys are focused too much on the Sharia to the point that you miss the point and you miss God, right? That's usually how this language actually plays out. So,
1: this mythical figure might not actually exist at that time.
0: Meaning somebody in history, so it might be like the, the person after whom the, the tariqah is named, okay. right? Um, and it could be that these are all just legends that have been turned into true stories, or maybe they really happened. Or maybe okay. they're legends. Yeah. sorry? They could still be legends. Or they could be legends, okay. right? So there's the legend attributed to Abdul Qadir Jilani, the one I, I always love talking about, um, where he's walking on a retreat, and then this... Light appears in front of him, and then this beautiful man comes out of the light. And then the man says, I am Allah, do sajla before me. And then Abdul Qadir Jilani says, Audhu Billah, you are not Allah, you are shaitan. Okay. And then the man says, you are correct, your knowledge saved you. And then he says, Audhu Billah, it was not my knowledge that saved me, it was Allah who saved me. And then, and then shaitan says, again you are correct, but you should know that I led a hundred thousand scholars astray, because they thought their knowledge saved them. Did that really happen? Oh. Dun, dun, dun.
2: <laughs> Wait, this was in a dream or did this happened to him?
0: Uh, the legend is that this actually happened.
1: I thought shaitan would never actually claim to be Allah because he still is a servant of Allah.
0: Meaning he, he has given up the idea that you can actually worship him. But he hasn't given up the idea that he can fool you.
2: But how did that how he he's how, given up the idea that you can worship
0: that he can worship. Him? So 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 with the establish, with the conquest of Mecca, Shaitan has given up any hope that he himself will be worshipped, right? I mean there's of course, you know, temples of Satan and stuff like that. Um uh but uh, the idea being that he has given up, you know, any legitimate hope that he is going to be worshipped ever. Yeah. So what are you saying?
1: I thought that um where but it says somewhere that he he leads us people astray, and then he says, "I'm innocent of you. Yeah. I would I would never like commit shirk." Mm-hmm.
0: I don't know about I would never commit. Or shirk. I would,
1: I would never do something. I forgot. I forgot what it was exactly.
0: I don't know. I mean, there's there's the passages in the Quran where the, um, in hell. Some people are coming to him, and he's saying, and I'm paraphrasing. Look, you know, you know, I didn't keep any. I I don't keep any promises, right? Although the one who doesn't break his promise. i yeah. us we'll see if you can find that passage. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That would be interesting. Yeah. Okay, let's continue.
1: Right. Um, the near-universal pre-modern practice of the visitation, ziyara, of Sufi tomb shrines to benefit from the blessing of the spiritual power of the deceased saint is expressive of the recognition on the part of its practitioners of an unseen cosmos of revealed truth in which Sufi practitioners were active participants and of which they were active conveyors. God himself himself tells us that he is the originator of the heavens and the earth, who has knowledge of the seen and the unseen. And the real higher truth, haqqa, to which the Sufis aspire, is the uncorrupted, pure truth of the unseen, non-material reality, to which material reality and its truths stand in a figural or metaphorical relation.
0: Okay, so like the philosophers, they are also speaking of this higher truth um, that is not available to everyone. And so they're using the language of haqiqah. Okay. I mean, Allah is the one who has the knowledge of the seen, the unseen, and they're, And so, what are the Sufis essentially aspiring to—to to see reality truly for what it is?
1: Okay. Seeing the unseen.
0: Not so much. It's not the same as seeing the unseen. So think of it this way: that all right, think of how you look at the world when you're ten, mm-hmm. and how you look at the world now. And so would you say that you have a better understanding of reality now than you did when you were ten? Yeah. Yeah. And so think of, of, of the Sufi as having a like pure understanding of of reality, unfiltered, right? Which ultimately means that um, in whatever way it would happen, it's you're seeing Allah. Okay, you're not physically seeing Allah, right? And so, usually, this in the Sufi language, you're ceasing your own existence. You're seeing that there's nothing but Allah. Okay, I so.
1: yeah. uh, what was I? In Sufi thought, the unseen real world and real truth is haqiqa. This world and its truth is a figural or metaphorical presentation, Arabic majaz, um, of real truth. The visible witness material world in which we live, the Quranic world of witnessing. Al- is yeah. okay. is uh, the alam al majaz the world, al- Ar- the, has, yeah. the world of the figure slash metaphor, yeah. whereas the invisible non-material world, the Quranic world of the unseen alam al ghayb, is that right? alam al Once the Muhammadan revelation issues forth and proceeds to the scene, is the alam al haqliqa the world of real truth? Okay,
0: so so then what else are we saying? That if that is reality, okay, then what we have in front of us is not reality, okay? Uh, and so the language they're saying, what we have in front of us, is a hint of reality. So when, um, we I don't know if we did in your class or a different class, but when Imam al-Ghazali is saying, like, okay, when you eat too much and the way you feel, uh, that sick way you feel, you're actually being given a taste of hell. Good. Oh, yeah, One. you did make We it. did, yeah. And then when you, when you eat something that's really upright for you and in the proper quantities, you feel wonderful. So you're getting a taste of heaven. Good. And then some even take it further that, you know, when you see colossally bad things or, or difficult things happening, like a thunderstorm or something or a fire, you've been given a taste of hell. Good. Um, but that's not hell. And then likewise, you know, if it's wonderful rain or something, you're being given a taste of heaven. Okay. And so what are we saying? That everything in this world at one level is doing that what to you. Datwa okay. okay, Every tree, when you look at the tree, it's actually doing Datwa ilallah, whether or not you realize it. Okay. And likewise, you know, every corner of this room is doing dawah ilallah. Okay. And then deeper than that, everything is also giving you some of the attributes of these things that are in the unseen. Okay. And so thus they're saying, everything around you is actually just a metaphor. metaphor. Okay. This is not the real world. Right.
1: Yeah? I mean,
0: it's kind of like, I mean, what's interesting is that a lot of these ideas uh, seem to uh, either be influenced by Aristotle, Plato, Neoplatonic uh, philosophers and such, um, or... Muslim scholars took those pieces and said, they said this fits into our outlook. Okay. Yeah. Okay.
1: It was Sufism that came to provide the conceptual and praxial vocabulary in which the majority of Muslims experienced by way of regular collective rituals carried out in institutionalized Sufi spaces, where higher Sufi thought tied sources of immediate relief and hope in every village and Qasbah to Muhammad's revelation.
0: Okay, so what are we saying? Sufis were the ones who really brought Islam to everybody. Right? We're not talking about the era of the Sahaba, we're talking about the later eras. And uh, I don't think he mentions it here that throughout much of their history, Sufis were the social activists. Mm-hmm. They're the ones who provide food. You know, They're the ones who would organize in what we would today call unions. Um, and they were by and large the social activists. Of, of They were the ones who were focused on social change
1: the most profound personal real truth of their existence. Sufism provided the conceptual vocabulary not only for the experiential knowledge of knowing of real truth, but also for its expressive articulation. Thus, as a practical matter of Sufi instruction, al-Jili, yeah. the elaborator from Muhyiddin ibn Arabi, possibly the most influential Sufi in history, of the transfiguring Sufi concept of the perfect human, an insan al-kamil, asserted that Ibn Arabi's ideas can save the novice the difficulty of classifying and formulating the elusive mystical experiences and symbolic visions that he encounters in this, on the Sufi path because they give him a greater conceptual clarity. The conceptual vocabulary of, Sufis, of Sufism became an ingrained part of the idiom of the speech of Muslims and especially of poetry, which was, quite simply, the most important and valued form of social communication among Muslims in the major languages of their historical self-expression yeah including Arabic, Persian, Turkish, and Urdu. Okay,
0: so in Urdu, what is the word for a man?
1: Adam.
0: Yeah, what is that coming from? Adam. Uh, what is the word for a woman?
1: What is that coming from? Aura. Uh, Arat
0: is coming from Aura. Right? And so a lot of this is built into Urdu, right? Uh, the Urdu vocabulary that we say all the time is actually coming from, uh, you know, these Sufi methods. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean Urdu especially because Urdu is uh, an invented language. It's not like some evolved language. It was literally invented to, um, uh, because there are a number of different Muslim armies uh, that were in similar locations. So, so a way to get them to all communicate with each other. Yeah. yeah Urdu How itself is it? like... Sorry? How long ago was that? I want to say it was not more than like 700 years ago. Maybe less,
1: yeah. The manifesto of. Oh yeah, one one other thing.
0: So Ibn Arabi, is also a very fascinating person, um, and so like it says, perhaps the most influential Sufi in history. Um, if you speak to people who are of the lens of jurisprudence, they will say Ibn Arabi was a heretic. Yeah. Um, I love
2: all the- all the people were like yeah, a heretic. <laughs> yeah, exactly.
0: Within the 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 realm of the Sufis, however, he was often considered to be like the biggest of of big in terms of Sufis. He's and
2: one. Yeah. What about the Sufis who sort of constrain themselves to within the Sharia? They say like they take it as a thing. That yeah,
0: he's he's the top.
2: He is. He's still the top. Yeah, exactly. So they don't consider him.
0: No, within the Sufi circles, they don't. But I'm saying even within the orthodox Sufi circles. And often, Ibn Arabi would be something that's taught later as an advanced class. And you know, that's often one of the problems in a lot of this, that a lot of times, if you're looking at it through your particular lens, you're probably looking at an advanced book. Okay. And just like, um, so today, if you're learning physics, you're not going to learn physics until you learn algebra. Okay, you have to learn algebra, then you can learn physics. But most of what the physics you're going to learn is Newtonian physics, and then you're going to get into quantum Einsteinian physics. Right? Which contradicts all of. It. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and then when you get in, it, but if you were to bypass everything into Einsteinian physics, then it's going to have no relation to reality for you, mm-hmm. right? And so this is uh, we're saying. There's different levels or dimensions of reality. Okay. okay.
1: The manifesto of the Sufi search for truth is summed up by probably the most widely read Sufi poet in history, known to countless Muslims as Maudana, Vandigar, Good. our sovereign master, and to history historians as Jalaluddin Arum, uh, Rumi, in one of the most prolifically copied, recited, and performed poetical or other texts in Islamic history, the Masnavi, Ma'navi,
0: so Masnavi, Man, is that
1: Arabic or Persian? Persian, okay, doublets of meaning, the law, Sharia is like a candle that shows the way. Without the candle in hand, there is no setting forth on the road, and when you are on the road, that journey is the way, طريقة. and when you have reached the destination, that is the real truth, حقيقة. it is in this regard that they say, if the real truths are manifest, the laws are nullified. Um, as when copper becomes gold or was gold originally, it does not need the alchemy that is the law. that is the law. The law, Sharia, is like learning the theory of alchemy from a teacher or a book, and the Sufi path, Tariqah, is like the transmutation of the copper into gold. Those who know alchemy rejoice in their knowledge of it, saying, We know the theory of this science, and those who practice it rejoice in their practice of it, saying, We perform such works. And those who have experienced the real truth, Hakiqah, rejoice in the real truth, saying, We have become gold and are delivered from the theory and practice of alchemy. We are God's freedmen. Each party is rejoicing in what they have. Or the law may be compared to learning the science of medicine and the path to regulating one's diet in accordance with the science of medicine and taking remedies, and the real truth to gaining health everlasting and becoming independent of them both. Mm -hmm.
0: So Dr. Omer's metaphor is that the law is the milk. And the way of the Sufis is the butter that comes from the milk. You can't have the butter without the milk, right? So an Orthodox Sufi will say, you must have Sharia as your foundation. And then when they're saying someone uh, no longer needs the Sharia, what they're saying is someone no longer needs someone to tell them or they don't need to be told you can't do this or you can do that because they innately do it, right? Right. And so then that would be another way to think of the way we think of Omar and Abu Bakr and such, like they were already doing a lot of things that later became commands, you know, that were not commands uh, at first. And so, so a lot of times when we hear someone is not bound by the law, it, what we hear is that they can do anything and everything. And that's what some people—that's what some people interpret this as. <coughs> and you can, as you can imagine, that opens the door for all kinds of abuse. Uh, but a common way that this understood is that you are automatically practicing it. So, okay.
1: The frankly stated ultimate goal of a Sufi is to rise through the hierarchy of truth to the real truth of God, in the process becoming freed from the prescriptions and proscriptions of the law, which, upon arrival at the real truth, are nullified.
0: So it's, that's exactly what we just said about the philosophers, too.
1: Yeah. As Abu Sahl at Tustari. One of the first to author a recognizably Sufi commentary on the Qur'an once said, The Gnostics have a secret which, if manifested by God, would set the law at naught.
0: Okay. So, it's another way of saying that, you know, if the Sufis shared what they've experienced with the masses, they would mess everybody up.
1: The Sufi claimed to knowledge of a different register of divine truth is well expressed by the famous Sufi Ruzbihan Baqli in the preamble to his exegetic, exegetical commentary on the Qur'an.
0: And so, so notice that they're all writing commentaries on the Qur'an. It's not like they're, they're you know, skipping past it.
1: God gave the exterior reins of the Qur'an in the hands of the people of the exteriority from among the scholars and philosophers so that they legislate in its exterior rulings and limitations and forms and laws. Sharia. Sharia and he made the unseen of the secrets of his discourse, discourse and the concealed subtleties of his signs for his elect few, and made himself manifest from his, world, world, from his words to their hearts, spirits, intellects, and secretmost selves, by means of revelation, keshf, direct vision, a'yan, and clarification, bayan. And he taught them the sciences of his real truths and the rareness of his subtleties, and he purified the rungs of their intellects by revelations of the lights of his beauty, and sanctified their faculties of comprehension for the brilliance of his majesty. And he made these repositories—he made these the repositories for the trusts of the concealed signs of his discourse, and for the complex secrets which he has reposed in his book, and for the subtle allusions in the ambiguities and difficulties of the verses. And he himself taught them the meanings of that which he hid in the Quran so that they come to know by his making it known to them. And he lined their eyes with a light of closeness to him and attain, attainment to him, and made them privy to the unseenness of the virgin brides of ruling, حكم, and of knowledges and revelations, and of the meanings of the understanding of the understanding, and of the secret of the secret, the exteriority of which in the Qur'an is ruling, حكم, but within the interiority, of within is illusion and revelation which God the truth set aside for the pure for him and for his greatest friends, and for his far-come lovers from among the truthful and those drawn near. And he veiled these secrets and marvels from others, the scholars of exteriority and the people of form, those whose ample portion is the abrogator and the abrogated, jurisprudence and science and knowledge of the permitted and the prohibited, of the statutory, and of the statutory punishments and rulings Okay. Wounds. Oh, yeah.
0: So, one thing I want to, again, draw your attention to. He hid in the Quran so that they come to know by, by his making it known to them. So, uh, it may be that a lot of these secrets are right there before us in the Quran. Where? Where would they be? It's the exact same words that you're seeing from a very, very different light. Right? Meaning... You have someone who's reciting the Quran, let's say in Tarabi, so we'll call this hypothetical person Sajid. Okay? And you have one person who's a person of jurisprudence who is hearing one thing. You have a philosopher who is hearing one thing. You have a Sufi who's hearing one thing. right? And all of them are praying. Right? So, another way to think about it being uh, lifted beyond the Sharia the Sufi is praying out of love for Allah. So if you can't not pray. Whereas the lay person is praying because they have to. Okay? That's what we're saying here. Okay.
1: The, idea. Okay. The, idea. the idea that God's truth is a differentiated truth of many layers, differentiated, that is, according to the capacity of a hierarchy of layers of individuals in society to know it is forcefully in evidence in the above passage as a fundamental principle of Sufi hermeneutic and itself draws upon Qur'anic statements such as we raise in degrees whomsoever we will and above every possessor of knowledge is one who knows and we raise some of them above others in degrees. The highest and deepest truths are those which Sufis access from the unseen by direct experience of divine communication while the lower truths are the truths of the law of the abrogator and the abrogated jurisprudence and the science and knowledge of the permitted and the prohibited of the statutory punishments and the rulings, which are deduced by jurists from the surface of the divine text and occupy the bottom rung of the hierarchy of knowing. Mm-hmm.
0: So, yeah, so imagine uh, you're climbing up a ladder and at the top of the ladder is hapiha, and the first rung of this very long ladder is sharia, right? Um, so, and it's a long ladder.
1: There are, in other words, connected but differentiated levels of truth, the fact of which implies that there are connected but differentiated epistemologies for the determination of truth. Mm -hmm.
0: So you you understand that? That if there's different levels of truth, then it follows that there's just different methods to find these different levels. So even when we speak of Islam, Iman, Ihsan the way that it's commonly, interpret, commonly interpreted is the realm of Islam is the realm of fiqh. The realm of iman is the realm of al and the realm of ihsan is the realm of the Sufis.
1: So how do you have... How do you practice the fiqh without knowing the al though?
0: So the basic... Uh, so the basic point there becomes that you're doing it out of obedience. Right? And that's almost like, you know, after the shahada, your first... You know, for lack of a better term, uh, your first aqidah, uh, or your first principle, is that you're obeying Allah. Right. Submission. And then aqidah is getting to what's concrete in the unseen. Okay. Right? Angels, books, messengers, and so forth and so on. Okay. So but you
1: should need, like, some aqidah before you start. Practicing. I mean,
0: yeah, you'll have basic, basic, basic aqidah. Okay. So that's, you know, okay. la ilaha illallah rasulullah. Some people will start with a whole book. Like aqidah of Imam mm-hmm. Right? Uh, I personally think that's... Um, not necessary. You know, I think it's more beneficial to get someone started off in prayer, mm-hmm. right? And get the experiential aspect of prayer itself. Um, and then through that process, you're also doing al Though, Like, I mean, it could be that it's Islam, then you reach Imam, then you reach Ihsan. Or it could be that all three of them are in the same time, uh, at the same time. Right?
1: These epistemologies have human protagonists who both assert the truth-making authority of their respective epistemologies in society and are also conditioned by the social authority of those very epistemologies. In this way, epistemologies are not merely theoretical notions, but are also social actors.
0: Mm -hmm. That's a pretty deep line. So an epistemology is not merely a theoretical notion, but is also a social actor. Continue, then we'll, we'll discuss it.
1: That these distinct trajectories of truth posed not merely as an intellectual but a social challenge of truth-making is well expressed in the above passage by Bumi, where this social fact is summed up with the Qur'anic quotation, each party is rejoicing in what they have. That is, each party advocates its own means to truth, its own hermeneutic and epistemology. Okay,
0: so thus we call a school of law like a school of thought. You're a part of a school of law. Are you raising your hand? Or, no, no, sorry. And then, then you'll have, you know, the, the tariqa. And that becomes something physical because they'll have a building or a room, right? They might even have particular ways of dress. So like the Naxbundis bundies in, in Indian Pakistan, maybe Bangladesh, how do they dress? They have a pointy cap, right? Yeah, what color is it? Green? Yeah, it's often green. Yeah. And so like the nicknames in Pakistan is often the HPs, the Haripagardis, so the green turbans, Right. And, and so, yeah, they might even have their own, their own uh, attire, right? You had similar things in Christianity, like you had, who are they called? Um, the guys who wore hair shirts. Uh, I forgot, but you know, like the different monks, the Jesuits will have their own different uh, outfits. And so you had stuff like that too, right? But what we're saying is that this, this whole thought and method starts getting institutionalized with physical structures, types of clothing, types of networks and such to the point that it almost seems like different groups within the community, and in some ways that's what it is. Because for some people, uh, their approach to Islam is more effective if it's fiqh. Other people, their approach to Islam might be be more effective if they do this approach to Sufis, and so forth and so on.
1: A prominent and permanent thread of the history of Muslims has been the struggle to arrive at a coherent working relationship in society between the respective truth claims of law and of Sufism. A challenge to negotiate a sort of balance of truth to adopt the title that the brilliant and urbane Ottoman bibliophile, social commentator, and cultural critic Haji Harifa Qatib uh, Jalabi yeah. gave to the book that he completely completed shortly before his death in 1657. A balance at different times and places in history, and at different social and discursive places in society, often weighted more to one side than to the other. Thus, Mansur Al-Hallaj was, okay, was judicially executed in Baghdad in 19 to, in 922 on the basis of his not-at-all-unique proclamation proclamation, I am the truth, but has been remembered and celebrated by Muslims down to this day, not in his legal capacity as a heretic, but in his Sufi capacity, <laughs> as a knower and martyr of truth. Mm-hmm. In sum, then, the Sufi lays claim to an epistemological epistemological, and hermeneutic authority that is superior to that of the jurists, of whom Muhyiddin ibn Arabi once said, The jurists, al-fuqaha, in every age have been and still are in relation to those who have re- realized truth, al-muhakqilqin, at the station of pharaohs in relation to prophets.
0: <laughs> how, how controversial is that? <laughs> Yeah, well, like,
1: everyone hypes up their own field. Right?
0: <laughs> okay, uh, it's but, in history. <laughs> but does that negate the truth claim? Yeah.
2: Yeah. It makes me skeptical of it a little bit. Sure, sure, absolutely. Uh, and not not to say that there is a higher truth reality, but it makes me skeptical that like like it's not necessarily you. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean, like.
0: But what if it is?
2: Yeah, but I'm saying like it could be, in it, but it could not be. right? Yeah, totally. No more, totally. Like, there's no, uh, like, I'm saying the argument can be strong either way. Sure. Or just as strong either way, like.
0: Sure, and so the question would be, it would be to, to determine how would we evaluate it. Yeah. And one of the difficulties is that you can't really evaluate someone who has more knowledge, right? You know, so let's say you're, you're talking to a scholar. Um, you can't really evaluate how much difference there is. Okay? Um, and so you're going to use the tools that you have. Right? So, either what they're doing, as far as you can tell, is okay, or they're going to show you something that is miraculous. And that is something to also be cautious about, because Imam al-Ghazali, he says, like, you know, only a magician can tell when a miracle really happens. Today, we'd probably say only a scientist can tell when a miracle really happens. Right? And, and so, more often than not, they'll, they'll say, you've got to walk the walk. There's no way to describe it for you. Yeah. Exactly. Okay, let's stop right here. So what page is this?
1: Page
0: 25. twenty-five. All right. Any last thoughts or questions? No? All right. So Hanukkah Lohomo be Hamdika Nashadu Lla ila Ha Ille Anta Nashtafiroka Nashubi Laik Wa Akhir Ta'wanah Anil Hamdulillah Rabbil Alamin.